Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. And here's your 30-second summary. There are quite a few lines on a tennis court, sideline, baseline, service line, all of which have their functions. But beginning in 1950, a powerful and charismatic African-American began to smash tennis's color lines one by one, breaking new ground and changing the world's perceptions of what was possible in the world of sports. The end. Let's talk about Althea Gibson. But first, let's drop her into history. In 1950, newly independent India elected its first president, and in the same country, Mother Teresa founded the organization Missionaries of Charity in Calcutta. While Disney's Cinderella premiered, as did the TV show What's My Line, and the cartoon that would later be renamed Peanuts. Diners Club began issuing credit cards, C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was published, and the Ladies' Professional Golf Association was formed. The Korean War began, and Edith Simpson became the first black American delegate at the United Nations. James Dean's first screen appearance, a Pepsi TV ad, debuted, and Shirley Temple retired from acting. Debbie Allen, Natalie Cole, Bill Murray, Stevie Wonder, Sybil Shepard, and John Hughes were all born. George Orwell, Al Jolson, and George Bernard Shaw all died. And in 1950, tennis phenom Althea Gibson broke through a color barrier to become the first black player to compete in a U.S. national tennis tournament. Althea Neal Gibson was born on August 25, 1927, in Silver, South Carolina, the oldest of the five children of Daniel and Annie Bell Gibson. The Gibsons were a very young married couple when they had their daughter. They were just 19 and 18, and like so many black families in the rural South, they were attempting to scrape a living out of the earth against all odds. Her papa worked with a relative sharecropping, a small piece of land, basically what would happen is a tenant farmer has an agreement with a landlord that the farmer can plant a piece of land while owing a tithe back to the landowner for the privilege of having done so. The problem is you, the farmer, get a bad year and you're out of luck, but the owner is still owed his rent. Also in the South, landowners, mostly white, often charged a premium for things like seeds and materials. They paid unfair prices for the resultant crops, as oftentimes they owned the mills or the silos. They rented houses to their farmers. There were lots of nefarious ways to keep people in debt and under your thumb. For the three years after Althea was born, Clarendon County, the county in which the Gibsons lived, had suffered from extremely poor growing weather. Althea's mama worked every hour there was growing a garden, raising livestock in the yard, doing farm work, but all of the family working together couldn't make this function and support a family. Not to mention that looming in the slightly near future is the Great Depression. Even though we're not quite at October 1929 yet, who feels the early and sometimes invisible pinch first of the economic downturn? People living on the margins of society, people who don't have a cushion. So even ahead of the official depression, rural farmers in South Carolina were feeling the pressure. And lastly, and maybe worst, and we've talked about this before, after a very, very brief period after the Civil War in which African-Americans seemed 
poised to take their place. In a relatively equal society, we talked about how there were 600 black men in state legislatures in the decade right after the Civil War, 16 in Congress, no less. Voting rights had been given to them, citizenship, if only that momentum had continued. Oh no, laws began to get passed in order to limit freedom of movement for African Americans, restrict or eliminate voting rights, and strip them of any economic gains they'd been able to make. There were violent reprisals against anyone who put up resistance to the ever-tightening noose. No, we are not going to go too much into that because we've covered it before, in particular in our podcast on Ida Wells. So you should go back and listen to that if you would like more information about the violence that erupted during that period. Daniel and Annie's born into family, their brothers and sisters, they were all going north. It was called the Great Migration. And over the I don't know, let's call it six decades between World War I and 1970, within living memory, over six million African Americans left the South and moved North at first, and then after World War II, there was an additional move to the West. It was one of the largest population movements in the world. At one point, one of Annie's sisters had come back to Silver for a funeral, and she talked with Daniel and Annie. They decided that they, too, were going to move North but they didn't have the money for all of them. So Annie's sister volunteered to take two-year-old Althea with her and let her live with her until Daniel and Annie could get enough money together to take the train and move themselves up to New York as well. Aunt Sally made a living selling bootleg whiskey out of her apartment. She seemed to be doing quite all right for herself. Hustle was a valuable personality trait. Harlem, the Gibson family destination, was. Not exactly the promised land. You had to have a lot of grit. As an example of that grit and hustle, when Daniel had saved up enough money to buy himself a new suit and train fare to get to New York, the plan was that he would get a job and then send for Annie. He was on the train and started talking to a porter. And the porter said, look, it's very confusing to get to Harlem. How about I take you on the very confusing public transportation system? You just have to pay for both of our fares and I'll get you exactly where you need to go. Well, Daniel took him up on that. There's no public transportation system in Silver, South Carolina. So for $5, the porter brought him on the train, took him to Harlem, got off the train, gave one of those big welcome to Harlem things, got back on. Not long after that, Daniel found out that while he paid $5 for it, that was a five-cent fare. That's pretty nervy, don't you think, to rip off somebody like that? So Papa had immediately gotten a job as a mechanic's assistant for more money than he'd ever been able to put together as a farmer. But all of these Southern refugees coming up north made for a housing crisis, and landlords saw the supply and demand and charged accordingly. Grocery and clothing merchants, seeing a captive audience, also charged premium prices. Therefore, Papa's salary didn't go nearly as far as it might have otherwise. The whole family ended up having to move in with Aunt Sally. The Harlem that the Gibson family moved into right on the cusp of the Depression was two parts. You know, there's the part that we think back at with like rose-colored glasses about the Harlem Renaissance, you know, this period of time where there's this cultural and intellectual and artistic cornucopia, this outpouring of talent by Black artists. And there was this big income increase for these 
certain Black families as well. But we're talking about people like Langston Hughes and Louis Armstrong, Cab Calloway, Zora Neale Hurston. This is the era of the Cotton Club. That's the Harlem that we think back on and think, ooh, that's exciting. But there's another part of Harlem, and that's a huge income disparity with that first part. And unfortunately, that's where the Gibson family moved into this impoverished part of Harlem. Not only that, the level of what we might expect as to supervision was non-existent. Aunt Sally's house was full of customers who had come to buy their whiskey, and it seems to be like a fun thing to do to give whiskey to three and then four-year-old Althea as some sort of whiskey house mascot. And Althea writes in her autobiography about how her father had to come home from work and I quote, stick two fingers down my throat. That is not a healthy environment at all. When, in the course of her aging, she was enrolled in PS90, it was overcrowded. There were extremely large class sizes in these small rooms. And from an early age, Althea learned that it was just better to skip class. When she came back to school, she was often spanked in front of the entire class, which reinforced her desire to skip class again. It was a vicious cycle. She had little interest in being in school when she could be out playing. Why do that to herself? And that's a pattern that stayed for the rest of her life. Now, possibly unrelated to the above two facts of whiskey mascot and skipping school, Althea was often sent to live in Philadelphia with another one of Mama's sisters, Aunt Daisy. And this aunt had married a Pullman porter, which was widely considered one of the highest status jobs an African-American man could have. This, however, seems to be the birthplace of Althea's true naughtiness. She tells tales of disobedience, of fighting, of getting dirty. She was once punished by being excluded from a party, a fun outing, and she hid on the side of the car, holding onto the handle, and rode in traffic all the way there, hiding outside the car, and then emerged on the sidewalk at their destination. Ta-da! I guess I am going to this party. Mm. She ran poor old Aunt Daisy ragged. So if this was supposed to be a place to put some decorum into Althea or some obedience, it was a miserable, miserable failure. This pattern of moving Althea to Philadelphia and the family moving from apartment to apartment, staying with other family members, as the Gibson family was growing, ultimately there's going to be five children. So four in addition to the Althea that they had brought up from the South. It was a very chaotic childhood. It wouldn't be until the age of 11 when the Gibson family was able to stay themselves in one apartment. So she's had this chaotic upbringing till the age of 11. By then, her rebellious streak had sort of hardened into a personality trait. She wrote of herself, I hated doing anything anyone ever told me to do. Now, running through the entire rest of her educational career, such as it is, is a constant string of what I might call petty crimes, such as stealing from trains at the train yard, raiding market stalls and stores with the baby gang of shoplifters, and one notable incident in which she and a friend stole a bike and sold it. She's told the stories, by the way, in her own words. We are not telling tales on her. That's just how her childhood was. She continued also her career of serial truancy. Althea later referred to her high school as, quote, the place she and her friends met to decide what to do for the day. 
maybe go to the movies over at the Apollo Theater or to play basketball or softball or baseball or stickball or ping pong or shuffleboard or football, you know, any number of things. Or maybe just do some criming, whatever, just not school. Also in the background, her punishment for all of this, her home life, Althea described... In my personal opinion, a pretty severe case of child abuse in the house from her father. The beatings she describes are no minor incidents, even though she says in her autobiography that she deserved every bit of it. Call me crazy, but most children don't run to the police station and tell them they're afraid to go home, you know? But of course, what do the police do immediately but contact her parents? So that's happening. That's the background of her life right now. What exactly her father's motivations for this next step were they're varied. It could be that he was trying to teach her to defend herself if she was going to have this future living out on the streets, or perhaps he thought there would be a career in it. But what he did was take Althea to the roof of their apartment, tell her to put up her dukes, and then punched her in the face. He proceeded to teach her how to box. So they would go up to this roof and have these battles of her boxing and him just beating her. It was a skill that came in handy, Althea said in her autobiography, growing up in Harlem where everyone had to struggle to survive and that had saved her more than once. She was bold and brave. One time she came upon her uncle being mugged and he's being mugged by a legitimate gang member, not a cute little baby gang, a real gang member. And she steps in to make this stop goes after the guy, he throws a sharpened screwdriver at her. It hit her. She had a scar for the rest of her life. That's the level of violence that this teenager is being brought up in, and she's not backing down. Now, in Papa's mind, as 11- and 12-year-old Althea began to grow taller than the grown men around her, there seemed to be the possibility that Althea might be able to be trained up to be what they called a lady boxer. During Althea's childhood, there were some local lady boxers that were making serious money by holding exhibition shows on stage with musicians and other acts. It was a whole afternoon. And the history of professional lady boxers actually goes back further than I expected. So I fell down a tiny bit of a rabbit hole. Famously, (laughs) one Elizabeth Wilkinson was known as the mother of boxing or the championess in Britain in the year 1720. Yes. And since she was famous for a 10-year undefeated boxing career, we can only assume she must have also had significant amounts of lady opponents whose names haven't come down to us in history. I was blown away that there was a (laughs) bare-knuckle lady boxing circuit. I mean, 300 years ago. Well, Papa thought that this might be the making of his wild child daughter. Unfortunately for Papa's fiscal plans for Althea, Boxing for women was legal in the state of New York. However, the New York Athletic Commission pretty much routinely denied applications from women for licenses to professionally box. So while she may have been able to do it as a side hustle, she couldn't do it professionally the way that he had been envisioning her. So it wasn't boxing, but another sport that set Althea on the path to greatness. In Harlem, the New York City Police Athletic League routinely blocked off streets to set up sporting events for the children in that neighborhood, to give them an organized activity to do, to keep them from doing what Althea was doing criminally on the side. They would set up any kind of games that they could in the street, stickball, volleyball, badminton. But the game that Althea seemed to be most attracted to was the one that was set up right in front of her apartment. 
It was a paddle tennis court. She and a girlfriend walked outside one day, saw a couple of rackets and a ball and started playing. And she fell into it fast and extremely well. Paddle tennis is a relative of pickleball, which has exploded in the United States in the past few years, (laughs) which to my mind is played with a sort of wiffle ball. Paddle tennis is played instead with a hard rubber ball. I have to say there's another game coming. There's another game coming. It's basically paddle tennis. So with the hard ball, like 360, it has walls and a ceiling and is like a recipe for a concussion. So wear a helmet if P-A-D-E-L comes to your town and, and a mouth guard and like safety glasses. And I just can't imagine coming out of there without giant welts as if you've been to the paintball court. I just can't imagine it's super fun, but whatever, it's coming. Uh, it sounds like a hybrid of racquetball and dodgeball. Oh my gosh, I'm like like having shivers just thinking back to dodgeball. <laughs> Well, did you play that? We called it. We called. Well, did I play it? That's another question. But we called it (laughs) bombardment. Um, And I had a good strategy for that game. I can still hear those balls. You can still smell them in your mind, right? Can't you? (laughs) All of Gen X. So I used to stand at the front and just request a little tap, please, so that I could get out and sit by the side with my friend Angie Beckley and talk about what we need to talk about for the rest of class. I was not a good (laughs) gym class participant. I have spoken before about how I walked the track every day in gym class because I never brought my uniform. Well, this is part of the same strategy. (laughs) So, yeah, am I going to be playing paddle, tennis, pickleball, or paddle? No, I'm not. None of those things. (laughs) But Althea was not like me. Althea would play all day, every day. She made up a tournament with her friends called Losers Reapers, and she was neither of those things. She dominated And then she took names in the citywide official paddle tennis tournaments, which, by the way, were co-ed. It was here at one of these tournaments that she was spotted by a police athletic league volunteer named Buddy Walker. And he just watched her fascinated at how into this game she was and how skilled she was after having not played it for very long. And he approached her and he said, have you ever heard of lawn tennis? Perhaps you'd like to play tennis. Mr. Walker saw in Althea a transferable talent. Tennis was a game that could lift Althea out of her impoverished background, and he decided to act. So he got her a secondhand racket, and he took her to introduce her to the game at the Harlem River Tennis Courts. He taught her all the rules. I mean, it was a much more formalized sport than the old Losers Weepers tournament. He invited some of his friends to come spar, I guess, you know, play against her. And she spanked everybody as a 12-year-old newbie was so much better than everyone else that some members of the fanciest African-American tennis club in New York City caught wind of her skills and provided her with a membership. Althea said this was the ritzy tennis club where all of the Sugar Hill Society people belonged. And those Sugar Hill Society people, those are the ones that we were just talking about, the Harlem Renaissance people who made an impact not only on the arts for the Black community, but also on their own bottom line. This is an entirely different class of people than where Althea had come from. I mean, we're talking about people like W.E.B. Du Bois, Walter White, the leader of the NAACP, Thurgood Marshall, Cab Calloway, Duke Ellington. The local tennis club affiliated with this neighborhood was called the Cosmopolitan Club. Tennis had always been associated with the upper classes. 
And tennis, depending on your source, either goes back to ancient Greece or the Egyptians. It's commonly accepted that the version closest to what is played these days comes from 12th century French monks who played kind of a handball game across a rope that kind of looks like tennis. And I have only my desire to believe that this often repeated, so it's very possible that it's true, story of how the name of tennis came about was because the monks, when they went to hit the ball, would say something like, Tene, which roughly translated to, take this. <laughs> so courts kind of sprang up all over Europe. Henry IV had one. Hampton Court has tennis courts. So that's the level of society that's playing this game. It's also coming across the Atlantic, but again, it's that level of society. But during Reconstruction, and that's talking about the period that you had talked about, Beckett, right after the Civil War, when there was a lot of Black Americans that were getting into government, before all the laws came in place to try and block progress, the Black community said, we would like to play tennis too. At the time, the white community said, well, you can't play here. So the Black community said, absolutely no problem. We will start our own organization. And they did. It's called the American Tennis Association, ATA for short. So if we say ATA going forth, that's what we mean. The American Tennis Association would be the, the Black Tennis Association across the United States, which was formed in 1916. So not too much earlier than our timeline here. The Cosmopolitan Club was the pinnacle of the network of over 150 African-American tennis associations in America. It was an entirely parallel tennis network operating independently of white America's tennis institutions, but really no less refined. Manners and etiquette were as important at the Cosmopolitan Club as at Wimbledon. All was quiet. All was polite. There was a choreographed scene of upper-class life. And Althea wrote that perhaps the Cosmopolitan Club was even more concerned with these because they felt like they had to be more refined than their white counterparts who were already kind of existing in some kind of Victorian mannerific splendor, <laughs> you know. <laughs> Enter functionally Ellie Mae Clampett, who knew none of the niceties, 13-year-old Althea with her jeans and her mouth and her talent, and had to be said, her talent. Though Althea was the roughest of diamonds, people could not deny that her talent shone through like a laser. They yeah. bought clothes for her. They tried to teach her the etiquette of the court. Like, hey, don't react angrily to other people's tennis balls coming out onto the court. And you know how you kind of hit them into the kingdom come or the sun with the colorful language <laughs> and the gestures? Maybe not that. Yeah. <laughs> it's at this point that she's starting to have a village built around her. People who are going to become chosen family for her. People who are going to help support her, honestly, for the rest of her life. Buddy Walker had introduced her to her first coach, who was curiously a one-armed teaching pro and ATA player. So he is playing tennis with one arm, and he's coaching her. He's teaching her the mechanics of the game, some of the etiquette, the demeanor that she should have while she's playing for a point, as well as the demeanor she should have as she steps off the court. She said that that part wasn't sticking too much, according to her. I didn't think he got too far in that department. My mind was pretty strong. I wasn't exactly ready to be a fine lady. So, Althea, willing to follow advice as to the actual gameplay, because after all, she's in it to win. But as far as her life outside of the court, none of the tennis people's business, frankly. And I'm sure that was a source of consternation. <laughs> 
uh, much is always made of the quote, civilizing influence of the culture of tennis. Um, some members of the Cosmopolitan Club felt that Althea didn't show the proper gratitude, maybe, for the opportunity that she'd been given. Hmm. Well, a year after Althea began playing at the Cosmopolitan, the club hosted the New York State Open Championship. And Althea won! I wasn't surprised. She said, I always win. (laughs) So gracious in her winning. Especially sweet for this win in her mind. Two things. Her opponent was a white girl. Therefore, and this is true, of course, therefore, white people weren't better as a class automatically, were they? Said Althea. Also, Althea was absolutely convinced that the members of the Cosmopolitan Club had been rooting for her opponent to win because she thought that the Cosmopolitan Club people wanted to take her down a peg. And so that was especially sweet too. How you like me now? (laughs) This cloud of over overconfidence, I don't know, um, traveled (laughs) with her to her first out-of-town competition Not long afterward, actually, it was the Nationals, which, of course, she competed in as a state champion. And she made it all the way to the semifinals with her prize fighter swagger, and she got immediately trounced. I mean, it was embarrassing by an expert opponent. Yeah, not good. Althea did not shake hands. There was a no good game, good game. In fact, she headed over to the stands to fight a male spectator who had laughed at her. There is so much work to be done. Rocket Money helped me out again, Beckett. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Okay. So one of the streaming services increased the price this past month. In the past, before Rocket Money, I just would have mindlessly paid it because it's just on a auto pay. But this time, Rocket Money sent me a note and said, um, hey, this subscription service is going up $4. $4. Do you want to pay it? Slash. Yeah. So I was able to look into it and see why it was increased for $4. I left it for now. But having that little notification that tells me you're about to spend more money than you think you're going to spend is invaluable to me. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. They'll even try to get you a refund for the last couple of months of wasted money and negotiate to lower your bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is take a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year, with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash historychicks. That's rocketmoney.com slash historychicks. rocketmoney.com slash History Chicks. Althea's home life had fallen completely apart. After only a year at a vocational high school, she pretty much dropped out to roam the streets. Sometimes she'd ride the subway all night, afraid to go home. Justifiably so. One time she came home and her father punched her in the face and they had a hey-ho rumble up and down the hall. 
It's not good. Well, Althea went to a children's home of her own accord. So there's a red flag for how it really was at home. And at the age of 15, the state welfare department placed her with a foster family. And she had a series of minimum wage jobs, which all these books keep talking about, but it's fine. We all do that at 15. Like we don't have our career moment at like Freddy's French fry house or whatever. True. And she actually, one of the jobs she had was a desk job that she did really well at. Until the day she decided to go to a concert instead of going to work. And she admitted it the next day and lost her job. She did have a little bit of structure in her life. She was a forward on the mysterious girls basketball team, a Harlem girls basketball team. She did very well. If anyone remembers our coverage of golfer Babe Didrikson Zaharias, she also had a strong early career in basketball too, 10 years before this, you know, and she faced the same consternation from the populace, like all this grunting and swearing. Basketball is not a ladylike sport. (laughs) But it's funny because they played industrial teams. Both of them did. So Babe Didrikson and Althea Gibson did. Their teams played um, like factory teams. It was kind of a way, I don't know if they do that anymore. I'd be very interested to know. I guess I've, I've heard of softball teams, work softball teams. But, you know, I'm interested to know if anybody has a work basketball team. Speaking of tennis, Althea had won the 1943 New York State Open. So she is a second time champion. And at last, she won the Nationals decisively against her old opponents. Remember that embarrassing loss last year? Yay! (laughs) Althea Gibson was number one in girls tennis at the ATA. There was no nationals next year because of the war kind of put a little bit of a kibosh on competitive tennis. Well, hooray, I need a break. Althea and her basketball friends pooled their money and they would go out. You know, we used to do the same, much to the consternation of servers. You would get like an order of French fries for the table, <laughs> s'il vous plaît, you know, and you'd be out at Perkins. Just water, coffee. just water. Yeah, another yeah, water. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, she just remembers those years of hanging out with her basketball friends. like. You know, during a time when she was relatively free of the pressure of tennis, she remembers it as, quote, those years were the liveliest of my life. I had no responsibilities and no worries. And I am convinced, I don't even know what to call this. There's probably a German word for it. There's a blanket of innocence or or youth or devil-may-careness where your standards for comfort are low mm-hmm. and your openness to adventure is high. I mean, yeah. I need that exact behavior pattern as a week of vacation. Like, how do you recapture that? I don't don't, know. I don't know. I don't know. But if you figure out a way, let me know because I'll go with you because that would be awesome. But she also at this time had kind of a, a family and these girls. It was like a sorority almost. The social support that she'd really never had in her own community that probably added to that feeling of whatever the German word for it is. One of the things this group of girls did was to go bowling, and they did it a lot. Of course, Althea was great, but one night they're at a bowling alley, and they look over, and all the girls start pointing, and they're saying, is that Sugar Ray Robinson? This is the welterweight champion who had been making the news, not only in the black papers, obviously, but in the white papers, too. He was a big deal. So Althea walks right over to him and she says, so you're Sugar Ray Robinson. Well, I can beat you in bowling right now. (laughs) He loved it. He did. She charmed him in a very short period of time. 
So much so that he and his wife kind of took her as another one of those chosen family members. And he found out that she had been learning to play the saxophone when she was in school. So he bought her a used saxophone, a saxophone that she had with her for the rest of her life. Mr. and Mrs. Robinson would be solid presences in her life from now on. They were stable. They were wealthy. They were indulgent. He didn't get too mad when she drove his cars, etc. But that saxophone, she's like, you know what? Maybe I could be a singer or at least maybe I could be in a band. I love this optimism. The possibilities are just endless. Like she yeah. whatever. <laughs> but Dennis reached out with something shiny at just the right time. The most famous woman tennis champion in the world, Alice Marble, winner of 18 Grand Slams, uh, meaning you win the Australian Open, French Open, Wimbledon, or the US Open. So those are Grand Slam competitions. She did it 18 times. And she was ranked number one in the world in 1939 and then retired from competition the next year. Alice Marble played a series of exhibition matches at the Cosmopolitan and blew Althea Gibson away. This is what Althea said about Alice Marble and her game. Alice's effectiveness of strike and the power she had impressed me terrifically. It was the aggressiveness behind her game that I loved. Watching her smack that effortless serve and then follow it into the net and put the ball away with an overhead as good as any man's. I saw new possibilities in this game of tennis that I had never, ever seen before. Althea Gibson began to think of her own game in a bold, groundbreaking new way. One of the things she said was, I began to understand that you could walk out on the court like a lady, all dressed up in immaculate white, be polite to everybody, and still play like a tiger and beat the liver and lights out of the ball. She's turned a corner now. She's found a mentor to emulate as far as her game goes. And she's realizing, oh, I get all those other lessons that they've been giving me about deportment and being polite on the court when I need to be. I love it. this, too. She also said, same time, I remember thinking to myself that taking to the tennis court and playing was kind of like a matador going into the bull ring. I'm beautifully dressed. I'm bowing in all directions. I'm following the fancy rules to the letter. And all the time, I have nothing in mind except sticking that sword into the bull's guts and killing him dead as hell. <laughs> I mean, I, love- I guess she got it. There, yeah. There's a performance element mm-hmm. and there's a performance element. You know, yeah, you got to right. bring art and science together. That's right. Before we move on, I absolutely must remind you that we've met Alice Marble before on this very show in a completely different context. Alice Marble was the editor at the Wonder Woman comic book, who was responsible for the epic feature inside every issue called Wonder Women of History. And she would later go on to train Billie Jean King. So perhaps one day we will cover her. Susan knows another fact about her. (laughs) I do. Now, this fact is debated because it hasn't been proven, but it also hasn't been unproven. She was, during World War II, a spy for the Americans. She was a spy. I know. Yeah. As soon as I read about her the very first time, I put my book down and I ordered her biography (laughs) because I wanted to read it all. So she does seem like a good subject. Yeah, I think so. I hope so. But this is not the Alice Marble show. This is the Althea Gibson show. And back we go to Miss Gibson. She won her last juniors competition in 1945 and during the 1946 season, an 18-year-old Althea fought her way up to the finals in the women's division. She's in the big time. 
She wore shorts like her hero, Alice Marbles, and made a name for herself immediately by beating some big names. Some of her um, some of her matches were considered upsets, like there's no way this girl's going to beat these people, and she did. The finals that year, though, didn't go her way. And I am trying to understand what exactly happened. It was an embarrassing loss. And I don't know if she fell for some trickery. I, I read a couple of accounts where her opponent pretended to be tired to kind of make Althea lose her, I don't know, her mojo or something or lose her like pressing the right. advantage. And then and, and she got lulled into a false sense of security and then got spanked, basically. Right. Tennis is a psychological game more than I think people realize. It's a very valuable lesson for Althea. And it seems to me like expectations of Althea's New York backers had gotten exceptionally high. I mean, this is her first grown-up tournament. Mm -hmm. And some of them said to her that, I mean, I'm paraphrasing here, but like, we're done putting up with your crap and your attitude if you're not going to deliver. In almost as many words, and Althea wrote in her autobiography that she recalled sitting kind of bewildered and dejected in the stands after this loss. I mean, it wasn't just that she lost, it's that people screamed at her about it afterward. And mm. she's like, I, I didn't know what that was. I'd never seen that before. Yeah. But there were two other people sitting in the stands that day who saw in Althea the makings of a world champion. They were both doctors, Dr. Hubert Eaton and Dr. Robert Johnson. And these two gentlemen got together and offered her a path, not just through tennis, but for life. So doctors Eaton and Johnson had been concocting a plan among themselves, and they weren't the only ones, by the way. Dr. Eaton wrote in his autobiography, knowing that the Jim Crow signs on the tennis courts of the world had to come down sooner or later and that a strong black contender should be waiting in the wings for that to happen, we began making plans for Althea's future. So they wasted no time sharing it with Althea. We'll help you get a college scholarship. We'll train you to win at this level. Ah, <laughs> great idea. I dropped out a long time ago. I only finished junior high because they wanted me to be somebody else's problem. Oh, mm, okay. Um, plan B, we'll be... Um, so they had to go away. They had to go think about it yeah. <laughs> a while. And then they came back with a good, solid plan B. So Althea would move into Dr. Eaton's house in Wilmington, North Carolina for the school year and attend high school there. He would train her on his tennis court at his house during the school year. And then in the summertime, she would go to Dr. Johnson's house in Lynchburg, Virginia, for intensive summers of tennis training and competitions in ATA tournaments across the country. What do you say? It should be noted, in fact, that in addition to being medical doctors, these men were both expert tennis players. So it's not like just right. Joe I, Money Man came along with a bright idea. Hey, kid, I'm going to make you a star. But like, right. you know, they knew what they were talking about. <laughs> yeah. And they saw they knew the skill level that she could achieve with the proper training and coaching. I just think it's so interesting that all these players that are playing in all these tournaments, they have these careers like they're doctors. You know, they're very wealthy people. You know, but again, that's the game of tennis at this point. It's not for anybody who can't support themselves while they play the game. It really wasn't a slam dunk for Althea to make the decision. She did not want to go back to school. 
And she had that whole village of mentors in New York that had been encouraging her. And this opportunity had come along just as she had aged out of the foster care system. The timing was perfect to cushion her transition. She kind of needed a path to do something. Dr. Eden wanted to make sure that she had her parents' permission, even though at this point she is legally an adult. But she hadn't lived with her parents for years. And there's no comment about what her father said. But Mama Annie wrote a note to him and said, God bless you for your help with my child. Simple as that. Well, it was with great trepidation that Althea traveled to the South in the fall of 1946. Justifiably so. We are in the era of colored versus white drinking fountains, of segregated facilities, of sitting in the back of the bus. Dr. Eaton and his wife had even had to buy their house through a white friend as realtors wouldn't sell in this area to people of color. The tennis court in the backyard of Dr. Eaton's house was almost the only integrated part of Wilmington, North Carolina. Althea had to be made to understand that slip-ups in decorum in the South had consequences, some of which could be serious. They doubled down also on the behavior and appearance needed to further her career in a currently mythical but actively sought integrated world of tennis. And I think they really had her as a person in mind, too. Uh, You know, they were looking at her not just as a goal to integrate tennis, but as a way to help Althea herself in her life. Celeste, who is Dr. Eaton's wife, she kind of took on the deportment project that the ladies of the Cosmopolitan Club had been doing and refined Althea's manners, for instance. She wasn't allowed to eat in the dining room until she had Emily Post kind of memorized and can apply it in life. They weren't going to allow her to eat in the dining room because she just wasn't up to snuff yet. So there's a goal. (laughs) (laughs) I do remember they had her eat in the kitchen because she couldn't chew with her mouth shut and she didn't know how to use a fork and, you know. They really did bring out Emily Post. Yeah. Yeah, it was a well-worn copy at that house. So there was a lot to learn, I mean, in every venue of her life, and high school was not very easy either. They did let her enroll as a sophomore, which for you British listeners, I think that's year 10 or maybe year 11, somewhere in there. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, um, it wasn't the schoolwork itself that got to her as much as the social environment. Any Yankee person is going to already have a hard time in the South, especially with the added layers of Jim Crow that she's not used to. But remember how we talked about in the 1950s Housewives podcast about how society as a whole just anxiously tried to stifle all of that independence and freedom that women had gotten through the war years. And the cult of domesticity, you know, was revered. And femininity was the ideal. And so a loud, tall, sports-playing Yankee in trousers was the polar opposite of the Southern ideal of beautiful womanhood. She endured awful teasing and ostracism until she began finding her people on the basketball team and in band. Hooray for the saxophone (laughs) (laughs) that paved the way. (laughs) I thought it was so sad that she was bullied so hard. She had won second place at Apollo's amateur night the year before, but because her voice was so low in choir, they put her with the boys, and those mean girls got at her so much that she quit. Thank goodness for that saxophone. Yeah, yeah. One thing that was positive about this, she, for the very first time, enjoyed the security of family life and the security of two adults in the house that had their stuff together, which is not a luxury that everyone has and Althea had never had. 
So um, a lot of the pressure of having to be the adult was taken from her plate. It was. She even called them mom and dad. This is not the first couple that she's not blood relation to that she's going to call that. But she called them mom and dad, and they had two small children, and she looked at them as her young siblings, and they looked at her as their older sister. Yeah, it was a great experience for her. Summers in Lynchburg, Virginia, were tennis intensives, practicing in tournaments pretty nonstop. Dr. Johnson, though, was even stricter about clothes and demeanor than the Eatons had been. He hid her trousers from her the second she got home (laughs) to force her into skirts and dresses. You know, and I am just quoting him, do not give white people any reason to find fault with your behavior or appearance. Do not stand out in any way except by your performance on the court. This group of people in the summertime, these teenagers and Dr. Johnson, are piling into his Buick and driving from state to state. And not all the states are up north. A lot of them are down south. And there's a lot of what's called a sundown town where the black population knew they couldn't be out on the streets after sundown because lynching was a very real possibility in these areas. And they did have a couple situations where they ran into, you know, very racist behavior against them that were very scary, that put them right on the line. You know, they tried to stay in Black-owned hotels here in Kansas City, the hotel they stayed in. It didn't have air conditioning, and it gets very hot here in the summertime. They used the Green Book to get around and determine places that were safe and vetted for them to stay when they went to different towns. And sometimes... Hotel owners, restaurant owners, etc., sort of knew they had a monopoly and that everyone had to come to them no matter what, and they weren't the best maintained places. The standards were low in a lot of places, not all, but some places, and so you never knew what you were going to get, but uh, it was kind of your lifeline that you had to follow when you were going into unfamiliar territory. Which Althea did, winning tournament after tournament after her win at the Nationals against the same opponent again. Hooray! She lost the exhibition against a British white, Mary Hardwick, and lost her temper in front of a journalist. And the resulting bad press, calling her basically an unmannered gutter snipe, was, you know, Johnson's waving his hand. Do you see? You see what happens? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's what you get. Do better. Do better. And she did. Soon, articles came out in the black press like this one. Gibson is the representation of the graceful gazelle-like racketeer which American Tennis Association enthusiasts hoped for, but vainly, for many years. Nice. Factors delicious, ready-to-eat meals make eating better every day easy. Wherever tomorrow takes you, be ready with pre-prepared, chef-crafted, and dietitian approved meals delivered right to your door. So I was so in love with the cavatappi and goat cheese pasta that I got a hold of <laughs> that mm. I wrote them a letter. You know how you, you know, just write a company a letter. You don't think you're going to get anything back. And I got another box of mostly cavatappi and goat cheese. <laughs> and I was so excited. I did a little dance. Chris Graham loves them too. And you know that Chris Graham is an official chef. So if that's not an endorsement, I don't know what is. And I ordered the veggie ones because as much as I resist making resolutions, I did have one generalized resolution for the year and that is eat more vegetables. I didn't quantify. I didn't give myself a goal of the (laughs) numerical goal of vegetables. 
but Factor's really helping me because it's so delicious and so creative mm-hmm. that it makes me want to reach in and grab them. You know what I love the most about them is that they're ready in two minutes. Well, two minutes and 30 seconds on my microwave. But <laughs> the middle of the afternoon, I like to eat my big meal in the middle of the day. And I usually eat when I go, oh, gosh, I'm really hungry. Now I don't have to cook myself anything. In two minutes and 30 seconds, I know that I'm going to have an amazing, amazing meal that's going to take me till snack time in the evening. In addition to ready-to-eat meals, they also have cold-pressed juice, smoothies, energy bites, veggie sides, and more to keep you energized during frantic times. So head to factormeals.com HC50 and use code HC50 to get 50% off. That's code HC50 at factormeals.com slash HC50 to get 50% off. So the United States Lawn Tennis Association, which of course was white, invited her to two of its tournaments in 1949. Now, you know what? I'm going to rescind that. They did not invite her. What they said was, if you were to send in an entry, it would not be rejected, which is less enthusiastic than an invitation. If I were to say to you, Susan, if you showed up at my house tomorrow, I suppose I would let you in. Oh, like, that was really how, how motivated yeah. would you be to be getting me a bottle of wine and showing up at my door? So, yeah, right. mm. <laughs> Well, and even just to get those invitations from the white tennis world took a lot of effort, not on just Dr. Johnson and Dr. Eaton's part, but on an entire community of people in the ATA that were writing letters and inquiries on her behalf. Like, would you let her play in these tournaments? The goal was to play at Forest Hills Tournament, the national tournament for the white world of tennis in New York. But that organization, the USLTA, the United States Lawn Tennis Association, wasn't crazy about letting anyone from the ATA into their organization. So playing in those tournaments that you just talked about was kind of their concession. Not only was the invitation weekly worded, but they're like, yeah, you can play in these other little tournaments that we have, but not in the biggie. You know, I don't really have this written down, but I I was just thinking about something, you know, I know she's supposed to integrate white tennis and and she's at those competitions, you know, and Jackie Robinson is playing for the Dodgers now. I mean, he just integrated baseball. That's where we are. Althea was supposed to do that for tennis. But, you know, unlike baseball, there's an additional layer of class here that she has to pass. And then not only race, not only class, but gender. And I think this expectations, the social expectations that began to be placed on Althea's shoulder were at first maybe absolutely overwhelming. Yeah. And it's also overwhelming and something that even we can't understand as women um, because we have been the beneficiaries of standing on so many shoulders. But like she had the responsibility of being the first, even if in her mind she's just representing herself. She was looked at by the entirety of African-American society as the standard bearer for all of them. Like as she goes, so we all go. Right. And so that's a lot. That's a lot. In addition to playing tennis. Right. Um. It's hard enough. I can't play tennis very well. (laughs) 
Jack Graham and I played tennis once at a um, relatively well-heeled, like a country club. We got invited. My son picks up these well-heeled friends. I don't know. And anyway, we played there, but we always played up here on the hill with like basically Monopoly rules. Yeah. Um, we're very, very good at returning the ball to each other, by the way, and like barely making it inside the line and like <laughs> whack the crap out of it. And like we have like code words and and whatever. And we played great. But they were a little bewildered, our partners, one of whom, you know, people were seven years old. It's not like tennis pros were out here wringing their hands at us or anything. Yeah. Like, we're just two moms with two little kids in some godforsaken part of the tennis court. It's fine. Like, we didn't we didn't embarrass ourselves. But nevertheless, we, we didn't play very effective tennis. No, my mom put my brother and I in tennis lessons because she thought it was a good social sport and I played at it. And then as an adult, before I got married, I dated someone for three years who was a teaching pro. So I spent a lot of time at tennis tournaments and at tennis clubs, although I never played in the tournaments. <laughs> I was very good at sitting on the sidelines. Althea was not the first player of color um, at either of those tournaments. In fact, her male mixed doubles partner had appeared the previous year, along with a handful of other men. But Althea was the first African-American woman to participate in either tournament. And she made it to the quarterfinals in both tournaments. Impressive, especially considering she's playing with all the weight and the pressure on her shoulders that the other players don't have. Right. And and there were not only compliments on her game, you know, her vigorous drives were called out, her powerful backhand, etc. The players in the tournament, all white, were true to their ethos, the ethos of tennis. And she said, and I quote, I was made to feel right at home. Everyone was genuinely friendly. And it's as if they sensed the strain I was under and wanted to do anything they could to help me. Except let her win. That wasn't even on the table. <laughs> Well, that's not the ethos of tennis. You don't no, let people you, win. No, of course you don't. No, they they can take the it victory a... from you. Yes, from your cold dead hands, <laughs> if they can. But you're not like, going to hand it to them, and that's respect. I think. Yeah. No, they respected I, I agree. her. Yeah, as a player. I, no, definitely. So white players had played, we didn't say this before, white players had played in the black ATA tournaments. They were welcome there for years, and that same egalitarian spirit prevailed as well in these white tournaments from the players, which I'm saying, mm. mm -hmm. which yeah. I'm glad of because Althea's welcome and superior showing in these tournaments caused political and racial drama. People would say, this is the tip of the iceberg. Beware, you know, right. today, tennis, tomorrow, what? Drinking from the same water fountain? Yeah. Ideally, yes, my friends. That's the whole yeah. point of this exercise, ding-dongs. You're right. One of the doctors came to Althea and said, Althea, would you like to play at Forest Hills? You know, that's the U.S. Nationals. That's the U.S. LTA's big kahuna. <laughs> Not to mix too many metaphors. And then she responded, ha ha, keep dreaming. And the doctor said, I'm not saying for sure you're going to, but it could happen. There's people working on it right now. And all she said was, well, I'm ready whenever they are. Althea did very well in high school once she found her people. She had taken the women's basketball team to a three-year undefeated record. So she was kind of, I know, it's a big deal. And she was going to be number 10 academically in her entire class. And she even went to her senior prom, which I'm imagining Mrs. Eaton was thinking was kind of her graduation to have <laughs> Althea at her prom in a, you know, a fluffy pink evening gown and her nails done and her hair perfect and best behavior. 
So everybody graduated. (laughs) I love that Althea received scholarship offers from multiple colleges, which is almost unheard of to give a woman an athletic scholarship in this day and age. Well, they were looking at her not just to play tennis, but to play basketball. And because she was getting so much press, not just from the black papers, but the white papers are starting to notice her as well. So it would draw attention to their schools for sure. So she was offered and accepted a full-ride sports scholarship to play at Florida Agricultural and Mechanical College in Tallahassee, Florida. We had talked about these historically black colleges and universities, these land-grant schools. We talked about them extensively in the Dr. Mary Bethune episode, so I won't go into it too much here. But this was an older school. It was founded in 1887. So she's going to a very good school. It's still there. I don't know the name of the team. How about that? How about that? I want to say it's the Tigers. (laughs) Oh, my. Go Tigers provisionally. Because we don't know. (laughs) Hi, Susan from the future here. It's the Florida A&M University Rattlers, a rattlesnake. And according to the university, it's because the snake embodies, quote, the resilience and grit of FAMU students. Go Rattlers! Althea packed up her things at the Eaton's and was on her way two days after graduation. My husband, Chris Graham, moved out that quickly. Uh, I did not. She said, I wanted to get started out on my own. I'm partial to feeling independent. Well, she's 21, you know, so she did graduate from high school very late. Um, So she's significantly older than your average student who graduates high school and then moves out two days later. Well, the college had a lot of rules on dress and decorum, largely for the exact same reasons that Althea's tennis coaches had for her. It was doubly important as the school was in the South. There were lots of enticements to keep their students safely on campus. There was a lot to do. As we've explored, Althea has a very strong personality. She's very gender nonconforming. And these rules for the school were not actually to her taste. And they let her bend some of them. For instance, she had been playing pool since she was a little child in smoky pool halls in Harlem. And the only pool table on campus was in the basement of the boys' dorm, a place where women were not allowed to go. But she just walked in and started playing pool. And before you know it, she's accepted there. She's allowed to go. So she's allowed to do some things that the other women on campus are not. She's famous for lighting up cigarettes on the sidelines of basketball games. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) She's also completely forbidden. They did draw the line on the rules when she asked if she could kick a field goal in the football game, the men's football team. <laughs> and they, they just said, no, 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 you can't do that. So, you know, she accepted some no's, not too many. but <laughs> Althea had a job on campus as an assistant to the head of the women's PE department, and she became a leader on campus while skirting the rules just enough to feel in charge, you know. Yep. <laughs> Everyone on campus became aware of her increasing national profile. They helped her whenever they could. She um, had to practice on hardwood and the only courts, the only actual tennis courts on campus were clay. And, you know, I'm not a tennis person, but they, they play differently. There's a different speed. There's different angles, etc. And she would often show up at the gym to discover that someone had carefully taped off a practice court for her in the gym which is amazing. She played often with the male players on the tennis team. By the way, she also played on the men's golf team. 
<laughs> because she can just do it all. Yeah. She was admired for her grit and also a sort of calm certainty that not very many people have. I mean, she might have quaked on the inside, but outside, she was ready to roll. She joined the New Homemakers of America. She joined Alpha Kappa Alpha, which is the first Greek sorority for Black women. She had a roommate her first year, another tennis player who kind of knew her from her Eaton summers. So that was okay. And she was a PE education major. So she had a career goal, you know, ahead if tennis didn't work out. I think that the doctors really wanted that for her, to have a career at the end of college that maybe wasn't tennis, but they were working so hard behind the scenes to make tennis be it for her. And then, as if right on cue, the USLTA, remember that's the White League, invited her back to both of their indoor tournaments she had played before. And she won the first one. No more quarterfinals for her. And then in the Nationals, which was the second one, she did lose, but she lost in the final. Which is so much better than she did last time. And she came back to her college to a hero's welcome at the train station. And I will put a picture in the Pinterest board or I'll send it to Susan to put in the show notes. The whole marching band is out there with a sign that says, Welcome home, Althea. Home. She has a home. It was all hail the conquering hero and no mistake. And her classmates weren't the only ones to notice. Officials at the ATA were sure that Althea and their plan for integrating tennis were both ready. We were sure by 1950 that we had a proper candidate in Miss Gibson, they said. They asked for an invitation for Althea to play at Forest Hills. The Nationals, the White Committee hemmed, and hawed and kicked the can down the road. And no less than Althea's idol, Alice Marble, was drawn in to investigate what the heck is going on. Alice Marble had a column in American Lawn Tennis Magazine, and she wrote an editorial pointing out the ridiculous of women's tennis and the USLTA not allowing Althea to play. She said in this article, I think it's time we faced a few facts. If tennis is a game for ladies and gentlemen, it's also time that we acted a little more like gentle people and less like sanctimonious hypocrites. She pointed out that black professional players were welcomed in other male sports, and she pointed out that she tanned every summer and another player had freckles. But it's just as ridiculous to reject Althea Gibson on the same basis, and that's the truth of it, is what she wrote. She is not being judged by the yardstick of ability, but by the fact that her pigmentation is somewhat different. She's a fellow tennis player and as such deserving of the same chance I had to prove myself. I've never met Miss Gibson, but to me, she's a fellow human being to whom equal privileges ought to be extended. I okay. mean, for Alice Marble, yeah. ranked as she was, respected as she was, to lambaste, I love that word, yeah. <laughs> Everybody in the tennis world like, okay, you say that it's about this. Right. You say that we have this ethos, but what really happens is you do stuff like this. And then like, why are you such hypocrites? Right. Alice Marble's column was just one more piled onto an entire mountain of work done by the Black community. So Alice Marble just was an extra, like the weight that sent it over. That's it. She wouldn't well, have, yeah. she'd written it any other time, it wouldn't have helped. But because of the player that Althea was 
and the coverage she was getting and the tournaments she was winning and the support of all these other people in her community is why eventually the USLTA did indeed say, okay, send us an application. It was immediately followed up by an endorsement in the premier tennis magazine in America and the New York Herald Tribune, which said something like, to any fair-minded outsider, Ms. Gibson has shown she has the stuff. And then Life magazine ran an article on her called, you know, it wouldn't be a headline writer if they didn't have a little pun, Justice and the Courts. And in that article, they wrote, Miss Gibson is certainly a better player than many who are ordinarily invited to participate in the Nationals, and it's about time the U.S. tennis fathers, who've been drawing a de facto color line at Forest Hills all these years, it's time they get over all their ancient prejudices. So Alice Marbles didn't swoop in as the hero of the story. The hard work for decades had been done by the ATA, by the coaches, by Althea Gibson herself. They had done all the heavy lifting. Society just needed a bit of a mirror. Lumi is a game-changing whole-body deodorant designed by an OBGYN to work wherever you choose to use it. Lumi is clinically proven to block odor all day long all thanks to its one-of-a-kind pH-optimized formula, and they've got over 275,000 five-star reviews to show for it. And I am one of those five-star reviews. I have been using Lumi for years. I have an entire buffet of Lumi products in my bathroom, depending on how I want to smell. You know, do I want to be coconut today? Do I want to be unscented today? How about lavender? You know, whatever's going to work with the perfume that I'm wearing, that's what I use. And I absolutely love their deodorant wipes. I use them all the time. They're in my travel bags, my carry-on bag. I have a package of them in my purse. So if you're ever near me and you feel like you need to get freshened up a little bit, just, you know, ask and I'll be more than happy to share them with you. Lumi's starter pack is perfect for new customers. It comes with a solid stick deodorant, cream tube deodorant, two free products of your choice like mini body wash and deodorant wipes, and free shipping. As a special offer for listeners, new customers get $5 off a Lumi starter pack with code CHICKS at lumideodorant.com. That equates to over 40% off your starter pack when you visit Lumi Deodorant, that's L-U-M-E, deodorant, and use code CHICKS. White and Black professionals who hadn't met her and had met her came out of the woodwork to train with her on grass courts. Forest Hills is a grass court. Again, another fact I don't know about tennis. (laughs) Grass courts are different than clay courts are different than hardwood courts. There you go. Correct. There was a very famous, I mean, I'm talking the USLTA grand champion two years running, a white lady from a very fancy family in Boston got her into a practice session at Forest Hills itself so that if she ever got there, she wouldn't be intimidated. She gave her a tour. They played probably the first time a Black woman had ever set foot on these courts. And this champion thought that was something someone might not have thought of and that it was important for that for Althea not to be awed when she got there. Right? Don't you think that was very thoughtful? That Only very- a lady person would have thought of that. I agree. 
Yes, very thoughtful. Evidently, um, this champion thought that Althea's style of tennis was well-suited to grass. Althea had a big stroke. She had good velocity and a big smash. I don't know what that means. <laughs> Evidently, <laughs> oh, her I speed... Know that one. You've seen it in tennis when they smash the ball overhand and they get the point, usually. Okay. That's the goal, anyway. So evidently, her speed and weight were well-suited for the faster pace, and I'm quoting, the faster pace of a grass court. I am so intrigued by this. Like, why would grass be faster than clay or hardwood? I mean, it is what it is. That's what, I mean, the champion said this. I have oh. to take her word for well, it. Well, no, but- it's like playing any other sport on on grass versus something solid. You know, when you, when you hit something solid, it absorbs of the weight of whatever it is, you or the ball, when it's grass, so the ball could go in different directions than is my understanding of the game. Okay, so we've got the press. We had the practice run. Where is my invitation? The officials at Forest Hills were saying, well, I don't know. She hasn't played in any qualifying grass court matches. I'm not sure. Um, just not sure that we're going to be able to invite her. She's not qualified. We don't have enough information to rank her. And so then the tennis world is like, how is she going to play in the qualifying matches if you don't invite her to any? Mm-hmm. It's sly. Alice Marble said that she was over a barrel. Yeah. Like, you've got her in a place. Like, how is she supposed to get out of this? And the Forest Hills authorities said, well, I mean, we can issue these invitations, but we can't make these country clubs let her play. We can't can't step on their toes. We can't make them do this. And so she's really, she really is in a place. So they're not going to use the weight of their authority to get her invitations to the matches that are required to play at Forest Hills. It's dirty. They're also standing by and saying things like, well, it's not in our bylaws that a black player can't play. They're saying that we would allow it, but then they're not allowing it. Yeah, that's really sly. Letting other people take the blame. Well, a trickle of key invitations came in and the press coverage grew as well as the pressure on the white tennis organization. (laughs) So much attention was paid to this that when her application was received, received, like they got it out of the (laughs) mail. When her application was received, it made the news. Right. Uh, Forest Hills would think about it, they said. Mm. On August 21st, 1950, the USLTA made an announcement. Miss Gibson has been accepted on her ability as one of 52 women who have been selected for the Nationals. And (laughs) Althea wrote later, they announced it in a matter-of-fact fashion, but there was nothing matter-of-fact-ish about it to me or to anyone. And not at the ATA either. A high official at the ATA said, and I quote, Many of us have worked untiringly for years to witness the day when our players would be accepted for competition in the national championships of the USLTA. That day has come. Althea Gibson will play at Forest Hills on Monday, August 28th. Well, that schedule was tight because the week before the big, highly anticipated event, It was the ATA National Championships, which she had won many years in a row and would like to continue to win. Many people thought she should ditch that. I mean, we know. We know you can win. We've seen it many years in a row. Let someone else have a chance. Please go train for this other thing. And other people were like, no, everyone is coming here to meet her, to celebrate. We can't just ditch everyone because those people invited us. Like, this is where she began, you know. And so she did. 
She did play that tournament. She became the most talked about tennis player in America. And then she got on a train to New York in order to make history. And that's where we're going to have to leave Althea for this week. She is on the cusp of something very exciting, but she has so much more living to do, so many more exciting things, and so many more challenges. So we'll be back in two weeks for the rest of the story of Althea Gibson. Thanks for listening. Bye. If you like what you heard today, tell your friends. Maybe find an episode you think they'd be particularly interested in and shoot them a link. Or if you're so inclined, give us a review on Apple Podcasts, for which we thank you. There are some spots left on our Paris tour for October 2024. Two of the major highlights, although every day it's just packed, I'm assuring you, will be a private tour of the Palace of Versailles. Private tour of the Palace of Versailles. (laughs) And we get to have lunch at Veuve Clicquot itself. It's amazing. Detailed itinerary can be found at likemindstravel.com. So we hope that we'll see you with us on our trip. The song in the middle is Slow Cookin' by Joe Smith and the Spicy Pickles. And the song at the end with eerily appropriate song lyrics is Play the Game by Lily Wolf. See you next time.
go away I am 